Well, good morning. Thank you, Adam, choir, and orchestra. Uh, we have a special guest this morning, Dr. Jim Hamilton, one of my dear friends. Um, I could spend 30 minutes introducing him. He's got too much to say, so I will make it brief. But Jim is one of the most prolific authors in not just Southern Baptist life, but the evangelical world. Every book he writes is profound and important. Uh, most recently, he came out with a book on typology. It's called Typology, showing how the Bible points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He, this, in the same year, he, he completed and published a uh, two-volume on the Psalms, which in my estimation is the most important commentary on the Psalms in centuries. But more importantly than that, uh, he is a man of God. Uh, I have seen him uh, with his family. We coached baseball together for close to a decade. Uh, interesting side point, our boys had a 58-game winning streak at one time that, that, that uh, basically cost over three seasons. Uh, but I saw the way he loved his wife, that he, the way he raised his children. Uh, he's one of the most popular professors at Southern Seminary, and he is, uh, he's going to be uh, a blessing to you this morning. I want to say publicly how much I love him. You cannot tell the story of Brian Payne without Jim Hamilton. Jim, come share. Thank you, brother. Love you, man. That's deeply humbling. I appreciate you, brother. Uh, you know, you, you, 10 years um, coaching your kids together, your kids only grow up once. And so... Uh, it's, it's irreplaceable what we've enjoyed together, the way that we've had the privilege of walking together and raising our sons together, and I'm deeply honored and grateful to be here. Let's pray together this morning as we look into God's Word. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look back that we might look forward. We thank you, Lord, for the, the ways that you have blessed us in the past, the ways that you have shown yourself faithful and able and wise and good. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn from Exodus 15 this morning that we should look back to your past act, acts of salvation in expectation of what you are going to do in the future. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray that you would teach us now by your word what it looks like to, to celebrate you and to expect more of what you've already done. Lord, we pray that the word would become our lifeblood, that we would live by it, that we would experience renewal and transformation as we look into it. And we pray that you'd do all these things and more than we can ask or imagine in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you this morning to open to Exodus chapter 15. And the big idea of this sermon is going to be that worship, what we're doing in this service and what we do when we sing to the Lord, worship looks back in order to look forward. And it's, it's fitting, you know, that, that Brian has, has mentioned uh, our years together because I think that even in our own experience, in our own personal lives, we have the opportunity to look back on God's faithfulness to us, on the ways that He has provided for us, and we should expect the Lord to continue to provide in the same way that he has in the past. 
That is what Moses and the people of Israel are singing about here in Exodus chapter 15. And in Exodus chapter 15, we have what may be the very first psalm ever written. I mean, it's not called a psalm, but Moses is a psalmist. He wrote Psalm 90. And uh, we don't know whether Moses wrote this particular psalm or whether his sister Miriam wrote this particular psalm, but uh, both of them lead the people of Israel in singing this song in Exodus 15. And Moses is the one who included it in the book of Exodus. So as we approach Exodus 15, let me just remind you briefly what has happened in the book of Exodus. In the early couple of chapters of Exodus, we read about how a new king has arisen over Egypt who didn't know about Joseph. And we read about this king, how he, he sets out to oppose God's purposes, and he's trying to, to hold down the people of Israel and keep them from doing exactly what the Lord told them to do. The Lord told Adam in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply, and the king of Egypt doesn't want the people of Israel to be fruitful and multiply. And so he orders, first the midwives, to put the male children to death, and they won't do it. And then he orders the male children to be thrown into the waters of the Nile. And Moses is preserved through that, that death that, that Pharaoh visited upon the male children of Israel. And then the Lord raised up Moses in Pharaoh's own house and, and Moses tried to intervene on behalf of Israel, and the people of Israel rejected him. And so he went out into the wilderness, and there the Lord encountered him at Mount Sinai and sent him back to Egypt. And he visited the ten plagues and then the plague of the firstborn. And Pharaoh orders the people of Israel out of his land, which is a remarkable, a remarkable victory. You have the superpower of the world, Egypt, which I would just note here that Egypt is not one of the empires, one of the nations, currently threatening the world order. Egypt is nothing today on the world stage. But at the time, they were the superpower of the world. And God takes their slaves from them. God liberates the people of Israel. Israel is nothing. They're, they're a nation of nobodies. They are slaves and, and Moses goes in. I mean, can you imagine a guy who's been 40 years in the wilderness shepherding the flock, walking into the court of Pharaoh and saying, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh looks around at his gods and he says, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I'm not going to let these people go. And God brings him to his knees and he brings the people of Israel out. Well, no sooner do they get out, to the land, out of the land than they get to the shores of the Red Sea, and here comes the army of Pharaoh. And the people, understandably, panic because they can see the water of the Red Sea that they can't swim. They don't have boats to get across. And here come the chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen, hard on their heels to, to resubjugate them to slavery. And the Lord opens the waters of the sea and they walk through on dry ground, and then the waters close on Pharaoh, and this song is sung in response to that great act. Now, the, the songs of ancient Israel, they don't work like our songs do, at least not in the way they're structured. In the way that they look back to look forward, they work the way our songs do, because we often sing about what God has done in the past in expectation of what, what God will do in our lives and what he'll do in the future. That's what's going on here. But our songs have typically, you'll have like a, a verse and then maybe a chorus and then there'll be a verse. We know how our songs work. 
This song is going to work like a stair step that's going to go up one side, and then it's going to go down the other side. And what's in the middle is the most important statement in the song. And then as you work down each side, there are going to be these corresponding parts that relate to one another. If you're interested in the technical term for this, it's a chiasm. Exodus 15 is chiastically structured. That's taken from the Greek letter X, which looks looks like a, a, a Greek letter chi, which looks like an X, and it's going to start and stop at the end at the same point. It's going to have these central points that are going to correspond to one another and then this middle turning point. So we're actually going to walk through Exodus 15 looking at the corresponding parts and, and how they match one another. So I would invite you to look with me at Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. So they've just come through the Red Sea, and we read, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. You notice they're not beating their chests. They're not celebrating. They're not doing the big stomp. Look how triumphant I was. Look at what I did to Egypt. No, I will sing to the Lord. For they didn't part the waters. They didn't cause the waters to overwhelm Pharaoh and his hosts, whose chariot wheels had clogged. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Now look over in verse 21, and notice how you find the same words stated slightly differently. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. So this is what I'm talking about, how it starts and ends on the same point. I will sing to the Lord, back in verse 1, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is what God did to Pharaoh and his hosts. Now look down at verse 21 again, the last words of verse 21, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So same statements made at the first are made at the end. And then look at verse 2. Moses writes, the Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. The people of Israel and Moses had no strength. Moses and the people had nothing. They had no political leverage. They had no superpowers that they could appeal to. They had nothing on Pharaoh. The Lord was their strength. The Lord became their song. Because he saved them, they are the one, he is the one they sing about. He saved them. They sing about him. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. So there's this resolute, laser-focused determination to sing to the one who deserves praise in verses 1 and 2 and in verses 20 and 21. If you look down at verse 20, just like Moses is leading the people in verse 1, in verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, and then you have the repetition there in verse 21 of those words that we saw in verse 1. Here's what we take away from this. Here's how we apply this to our lives. If you've experienced God's salvation, you didn't save yourself. If you know that God is the maker of the world, that he's holy, and that Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for sinners, to to accomplish their salvation, God saved 
you, you praise him. He's worthy of praise. He deserves praise. And, and we know this from the way that we respond to the Israelites when they get through the waters, they get past Exodus 15, and we know how they begin to respond, don't we? They start complaining. They start saying nasty things about the Lord. He brought us out into this wilderness to kill us. No, he did not. He's still worthy of your praise. We're, we're to learn from these narratives that God is always worthy of our praise. Whatever develops in our lives, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, remains true. We must respond the way that Paul calls, calls the Thessalonians to respond in that passage. We should, we should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. That's how we must respond. So the opening and closing of the Song of Moses here teach us that God deserves praise and that we should obey Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. The next section of this song, this song of Moses is in verses 3 and 4, and then the corresponding verses, verses 18 and 19. Look with me at verse 3, where, where Moses writes in Exodus 15, verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. It's like he's a champion. He, he's, a, he's a mighty warrior. The Lord is a man of war. And because he's a man of war, because there is no one who will overcome him, not some presidential administration, not some Chinese Communist Party, not some Russian autocrat, no one is going to overcome the Lord. No one is going to keep the Lord from building his church. No one is going to succeed against him. Not the university faculties, not the mainstream media, not the, the left wing taking over the political powers and systems and, and, and Hollywood and everything. No one is going to overcome the Lord. He is a man of war. And then look at verse 18. Because of this, the Lord will reign forever and ever. You notice how you have these assertions about the Lord. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now look back at verse 3. The Lord is his name. And you're probably aware that when you see in your Bible the word Lord, and it's got those small caps, you have that capital R, but it's a little uh, smaller than the, the capital L, this is representing the divine name Yahweh. And it's almost as though Moses is tweaking Pharaoh here because the Lord had sent Moses in to say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh had said, who is Yahweh? And Moses, it's like he's taunting Pharaoh. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. That's who he is. Continuing in verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. You, you know, it's really, it's really remarkably courageous what Pharaoh and his, and his hosts, his chariots, what they did. It was really impressive. I'm sure that when those chariots came rushing out of the city after the people of Israel, they looked dashing. They looked impressive. It, it would have been the most the most stunning military display of might the world had known. And then that army, they come to the waters of the Red Sea. Can you imagine? 
the walls of water to the right hand and to the left. And they can see the people of Israel going through. And there is remarkable military discipline because when the, when the Egyptian commander gives the word, go get them, those soldiers looked at the walls of water. They've never seen anything like this before. And they don't disobey. They come crashing into that opening. It's a remarkably courageous moment. But look again at verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. It's like, it's like the most powerful thing the worldlings, the, earth, the little people can bring, about the, uh, bring against the Lord and the Lord just throws them into the sea and he's done with them. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Look at verse 19. Same thing. When the horses of Pharaoh and his chari- with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked through on dry ground in the midst of the sea. The Lord is a man of war, verse 3. The Lord will reign forever, verse 18. Here's, here's your application point for this, this little corresponding section of this song. Be confident in God. Wrap your arms around those words, those awesome words in Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon forged against you will stand. And, and hold on to that. And be prepared to be like Daniel's friends. When, when the king calls them in and he says, bow down to my statue. And they say, our God is able to deliver us from you and your fiery furnace. He may not. We may die, but it won't, it's not going to do us any good to bow down to your statue. We need to be prepared to stand for the Lord because he's a man of war and because he's the king who's going to reign forever. If you quail in that moment, if they call you in and they say, you either go along with the transgender revolution and you use the pronouns and you affirm uh, the program and, and, and you get on board with all this, or you're going to lose your job. You need to be prepared to say, you can have my job, but you can't have my integrity. You can have my job, but I will be faithful to the Lord. If they say, we're going to clap you in jail, you need to be prepared to say, I'll go to jail. And in jail, I will sing my worship songs just like the Apostle Paul, and I will recite the scripture that I've memorized, and I'll be true to my Lord. And if you kill me, he's going to raise me from the dead, and I'm going to reign with him in the new heavens and new earth. There is nothing you can do to me. Because the Lord is a man of war, and he's the king who's going to reign forever and ever. That's how we need to be prepared to respond. Now, the most fascinating part of this song comes in verses 5 through 10, and then verses 13 through 17. These two sections correspond to one another, and the first one is about the exodus from Egypt, and the second one is about the conquest of the land. And, and here we really get to, get to see how worship is looking back in order to look forward. So let me first draw your attention to the brackets around verses 5 through 10. Look at verse 5 where we read, The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Now drop your eyes down to verse 10 where it says, You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And you can see how in both of those verses, verse 5 and verse 10, the waters are covering them and and the enemies are being described as either going down into the depths or sinking like a stone or like lead. You can see how those two two verses, verse 5 and 10, 
They, they bracket this whole unit here in verses 5 through 10, which is all about what God did to the army of Pharaoh at the Red Sea. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. You would think of Psalm 136, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, he brought the people out of Egypt. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. I mean, it's almost as though he's saying the seed of the serpent had their heads crushed here at this moment. The enemy was shattered. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are clearly the Lord's adversaries. They're trying to keep the Lord from accomplishing his purposes, and the Lord overthrows them. In the middle of verse 7 there, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. I just want to make a note here about how sometimes we Christians can be tempted to be too nice for our own good, and literally too nice for our own good. We don't, we're not, we're sometimes squeamish about saying what the Bible says. The Bible tells people, if you oppose him, he will smash you. If you oppose him, he will crush you. And, and we should be prepared to talk that way. You're not being nasty to people. If you warn them faithfully, you rebel against the Lord, you will not succeed. And, and you're not being unfaithful to pray. Lord, keep your enemies from succeeding against you. Bring them to their knees. Cause them to repent. And if they don't repent, keep them from being successful against you. That they're celebrating this here. They're, they're singing it. And then, and then verse 8 is really, really interesting. Uh, Moses and Miriam and the, the Israelites sing the words in verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. It's as though the Lord, when he went to part the Red Seas, he took this deep breath and then he blew out of his nose and, and all that wind caused the waters to stand in a heap on either side. And then, and then it continues, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. One of the reasons that this is interesting is because over in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 18, as David is describing the way the Lord delivered him from the hand of Saul and from the hand of all his enemies, he says in Psalm 18, verse 15, then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. It's as though David is saying, in the same way God saved Israel at the Red Sea, God did a Red Sea salvation for me. But David is talking about the way God saved him from the hand of Saul and from the hand of all his enemies. But he's using Exodus 15.8, the blast of the breath of the Lord's nostrils. I mean, David didn't pass through the Red Sea, but he's speaking of God's salvation for him in those terms, quoting Moses' great song. And then back in Exodus 15, verse 9, we see the dashing, daring uh, courage of, of the Egyptians again. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. This this. Uh, description of God's salvation of Israel at the Red Sea is also reminent, reminiscent of the description of the flood, particularly in that language of the floods covering them in verse 5. The flood of Noah, you remember the wicked of the world. They're, they're opposed to the Lord. They're mocking Noah, and, and 
the Lord sends Noah into the boat and he closes the door and here come the floodwaters that destroy all the wicked of the world. And it's, it's as though what God did to the wicked in Noah's day is being repeated against the Egyptians. And in both cases, the Lord saved Noah through the waters and he saved the people of Israel through the waters. And in a sense, at the flood, the world was baptized in the floodwaters of God's wrath. And in a sense, at the Red Sea, the people of Israel were saved through the baptism of the waters in which the wrath of God defeated Egypt. And and I think that this kind of imagery is why the Lord Jesus says of the cross that he's going to, he says, I have a baptism to undergo. When, when in Mark 10, when uh, the sons of Zebedee come to him and they say, we want to sit at your right hand and left hand. And he says, well, I have a baptism to undergo. What he's saying is, I am going to be submerged in the floodwaters of God's wrath. And, and Paul will speak of how the people of Israel were baptized into Moses at the cl- in, in the cloud and in the sea. And then Peter, in 1 Peter 3, will speak of how uh, the flood corresponds to baptism by which we are saved. So what's happening here, the salvation of the people of Israel through the waters of judgment that destroy their enemies, it really, it really anticipates the way that we are saved through the death of the Lord Jesus so that these people who have placed their faith in Jesus, these two earlier in the service, and they've been put under the waters of baptism to show their union with him by faith. They're buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life so that now no wrath remains for them. The, the baptism of the Lord Jesus in the floodwaters of God's wrath counts for them. So Exodus 15 verses 5 through 10 is looking back on the salvation of Israel at the Red Sea. Now look at the corresponding section of this song in verses 13 through 17. And here again... We have, we have this bracket. So look at verse 13 around this unit. You, verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now drop your eyes down to verse 17. You will bring them in. So you've, you've led them, verse 13. You will bring them in, verse 17. And plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. Verse 13, you've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now verse 17, you, you, you're, you're going to bring them in and plant them in, in the place that you made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So those two statements, verses 13 and 17, speak of the Lord bringing his people into the place where he will dwell with them, his abode. And then the intervening verses are all about the conquest of Canaan, which hasn't happened yet. They've just come through the Red Sea, they're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness, and then they're going to go conquer Canaan. Look at verse 14. The peoples, and and these are going to be identified as the peoples of the land, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the, Philistia's in the land, now are the chiefs of Edom, that's adjacent to the land, dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, whom they will defeat on their way to the land, and now the inhabitants of the land, at the end of verse 15, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And if you've read the book of Joshua, you know what Rahab says to the spies. When we heard about you coming, our hearts melted within us. Verse 16, 
terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. The, 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 the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, because of the greatness of the Lord's arm, are still as a stone. Look at the comparison back in verse 5. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Egypt is being described in the same terms that the Canaanites are being described. And, and the reason Moses is doing this is to say, what God did to Egypt is what he's going to do to Canaan. And when you start thinking about this, it, it, it's, it's really amazing how many correspondences there were. Egypt was overwhelmingly powerful. They looked like there was no way Israel could get out of Egypt. Well, the Canaanites, seven nations, Moses says in Deuteronomy 7, each of them more numerous than you, each of them individually stronger than you. And the Israelites are, are like, okay, we're outnumbered seven to one, and all seven are more numerous and more stronger than we are. How are we supposed to overcome them? The same way you got out of Egypt. The Lord is your strength and strong and song, and he has become your salvation. So you're going you're gonna to conquer Canaan the same way you came out of Egypt. The Lord's going to do it. The Lord's going to do it. Which is to say that the Exodus is a pattern of salvation that is now being applied to the conquest. Or to put it another way, we could say the conquest is going to be a new Exodus. And you know, in the book of Exodus, there are these terms that are used to describe things like the Passover. They're going to celebrate the Passover when the destroyer passes over the Israelite homes and, and destroys, lays low the firstborn of Egypt. And then as they cross the Red Sea, they pass over the Red Sea. You start reading the, the early chapters of the book of Joshua, you're going to hit that word Passover over and over and over again. They pass over the Jordan. And then they celebrate the Passover. And then there's all, there, there are something like 18 instances of this term Passover, same term from Exodus, in the early narratives of Joshua. It's like Joshua is saying, this story that I'm telling about the conquest of the land, it's a new Exodus. God is doing for us here at the conquest what he did for us at the Exodus. Now, let me, let me, let me say a little bit more about what I'm talking about here. here. Let me try to make plain what I'm saying. I'm telling you that Moses writes this song to say to the people of Israel, the pattern of our past, what God did for us right now at the Red Sea, is what we expect him to do in the future. This pattern of salvation at the Exodus portends or predicts or prefigures or typifies what he's going to do for us at the conquest. And if you start thinking this way, then you start thinking things like, oh, well, maybe I can apply this pattern all over the place. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll find the Old Testament authors doing just that. It's like everything corresponds to the Exodus pattern. And then this, this becomes so pervasive that when the Lord Jesus comes on the scene, you remember how the Baptist responded? Behold, the Lamb of God. Why is he talking about a Lamb of God? Well, because Jesus is going to fulfill the pattern of events at the Exodus. Jesus is going to accomplish the salvation that brings to fulfillment what God did at the Exodus. Fulfillment in the sense that, that the whole pattern of events predicts, in a sense, not, not like a prophetic looking down through the corridor of time and saying, one day this is what's going to happen, but in the sense that you've got this pattern that Moses writes up as a, 
a preview of what's about to happen, and then everybody starts thinking of it this way. So much so that you, you have, like in Exodus 12, 46, these instructions for what you do with the Passover lamb. It's not a future prediction. It's just a statement. You don't break any of the bones of the Passover lamb. And then when they crucify Jesus, and they don't break his legs, they pierce his side with the sword. And John writes in John 19, he says, this took place to fulfill the scripture. It's not a future prediction. It's a statement about what they were to do with the Passover lambs. Not one of his bones shall be broken. The whole pattern becomes predictive. And, and, and this is how this is all working together. So here's, here's how we apply the preview of the, or the, the, the rehearsal of the Exodus as a preview of the conquest in Exodus 15, 5 through 10 and 15, 13 through 17. We should be confident that he who began the work will complete it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. We should be confident in God that he who began the good work will complete it. To say this another way, Romans 5, 9 through 11, if he's saved us by the blood of his son, how much more will he not deliver us from the wrath to come? We can be confident that God who began the work will complete it. And that brings us to the center of this song. Look at Exodus 15, 11, and 12. Here they just turn their eyes to the Lord and they say, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And then there's, again, a little bit of looking back to look forward in verse 12. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. I mean, if you know the narratives of the conquest, you know what's going to happen at Korah's rebellion. It, it's like they're anticipating the destruction of their enemies as they sing the song of what God did to Egypt at the Red Sea. So this returns me to my first point of application. He deserves praise. So we should be those who rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks because there's no one like him. There is no one like him for his majesty and holiness, for his awe-inspiring, glorious deeds. And I would also note here that what the Israelites are doing as they look back to look forward is the same thing that we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is looking back at what God did for us through Christ on the cross to look forward to the return. And this is why the Apostle Paul says, for, in, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He deserves praise. We should be confident in him because he deserves praise. If, if, we, if we come to be people who have internalized songs like this, people whose, whose minds fire with these synapses because we have written these words on the tablets of our minds. When things go wrong in our lives, we'll, we'll, we'll do what Paul says in Romans 5 when he says, having been justified by faith, we have access by grace into this we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and not only that, but we boast in the hope of the glory of God, and we rejoice in our 
afflictions. I, I've, I've actually known people who have done just this. There's a dear couple, dear family in our church, and, and right as the, as the pandemic broke out and the world shut down, their, their little girl, seven years old at the time, was diagnosed with a terminal form of cancer. And when I talked to that brother on the phone, these are the words he said to me. He said, we are devastated. He said, the doctors have told us 12 to 18 months. And then he said to me, this doesn't change anything. We will hope in the Lord. We will boast in the Lord. We will rejoice in this affliction, in the hope of the glory of God. I was so encouraged by that man's faith. This is how, this is how the Lord means to equip us to survive the afflictions and the, the, the devastations that we will all face in this life. We look back to look forward. We see his mighty deeds in the past. We proclaim that he is a man of war and he will reign forever. And there is none like him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for mercifully revealing it to us. Lord, I pray that if there are those here today who are contemplating whether they want to walk with you, whether they want to trust in the Lord Jesus, whether they want to give themselves to the scriptures, I pray, Lord, that you would mercifully lead them to repentance, kindly grant them repentance, and cause them to become convinced that there is no one like you, there's no one holy like you, there's no one who can do more awesome deeds than you, and there is no one who can overcome you. And Lord, I pray that they would be so amazed that you in your kindness would cause the message of salvation to come this far. Lord, cause your mercy to overwhelm each of us anew and make us those who rejoice in your salvation, even in affliction, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.